Welcome back to another episode of e-commerce on tap brought to you by Sourceify. My name is Nathan Resnick and today we're joined by Axel from Heyday. Axel, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. So before we dive in, I want to get a brief background. How did you get into supply chain? Yes, I got into supply chain when I was very young, when I was 14, living in Argentina. I started working in warehouses and factories, learned to operate some light machinery. Then went to college and continued working in operations supply chain as a white collar worker, a BBA in business and economics, then an MBA in finance and a master's of engineering in supply chain management at MIT. And then did five years in consulting, always focusing on supply chain and operations and left BCG two and a half years ago to join Heyday. Amazing. So at Heyday, what is your favorite part of Heyday's supply chain? Give us a brief introduction of Heyday because you've got so many different brands that you work with. For those that don't know, Heyday is one of the largest and I think best Amazon aggregators on the market. What does supply chain look like at Heyday? You've got so much going on. So supply chain Heyday is very much a data-driven organization. And so as head of supply chain management, I also lead our ops data science team. So everything that we can optimize and automate, we go the extra mile to do that and to try to make it as lean and efficient as possible. Is the data side of your supply chain your favorite or is it more so the actual kind of interaction with factories and sourcing new products and all of that? Definitely the data side. It's the most intellectually challenging and exciting to work with. And also it's not something that you can study and learn. You really have to get out of the box to solve for the specific problems that the multi-brand omni-channel space throws at you. Makes sense. What are some unique insights that you've seen in the data that come to mind at Heyday as you look at all the brands that you run and acquire and then scale, what kind of data sticks out to you or what do you really look for in a data set? So I think it's some of the things that I thought going in, but proved wrong. One was the effect of like stock out. We used to think that yes, having a stock out was the worst thing that could happen to you. But then as you go through the data, you realize that as soon as you come back in stock, it doesn't actually hurt you long-term. The Amazon algorithm really picks up on your back in stock and it gives you back the ranking that you had from before. And then the other one that you really can't grasp, or that it's super different from normal businesses, is how erratic and changing the demand signals can be. So you, it forces you to rely less and less in what are known as time series analysis, like hot winters or the like. And you have to shift into much more advanced forecasting techniques and leverage AI to do that and to do it at scale. Makes sense. As you acquire these Amazon brands, what's a big shift or change that typically happens first thing when you acquire yeah. a brand at Heyday? And also for the audience, like what's the target type of brand that you acquire? So generally we acquire brands that are mostly online focused and started by entrepreneurs and that have had a really good trajectory of growth, mostly, but not exclusively on Amazon. And a very common feature that we see when we onboard brands is that the entrepreneurs are very good at understanding what the market needs and how to place a product that is successful. 
what generally they lack in is all of the supply chain planning skills. They'll do things like, for example, say I have a portfolio of products. So, well, I'm going to buy like 10 cases of each. And then what you realize is, all right, now you have five years worth of inventory for your lower selling SKUs and you are out of stock of your top sellers. So as soon as we onboard the brand, we generally get a huge lift on the in-stock that, that we see because of just having proper supply chain planning. And with proper, I just mean basic, not even anything complex. And then over time, we managed to shift the, the, the profile to consume the long tails and to truly start planning properly and, and buy the right inventory at the right time. How much of the buying comes down to negotiation once Heyday has made an acquisition? I feel like when a lot of these FBA, Amazon businesses are starting, they're finding suppliers just off Alibaba. And I think as you grow and scale, you have economies of scale with suppliers. And you know, how much, I guess, of that is consolidation versus negotiation with an existing supplier versus other cost-cutting strategies? There's a mix. So... Some things are easier to consolidate. Like, for example, if you think of all of your 3PL network, it's easy to consolidate and have just a few key players. But on the actual material side, it's not as easy. It becomes easier when you start focusing on specific segments, but it's not always the case that you'll have overlaps. So there, the analogs are more on our sourcing teams to actually negotiate with the suppliers and not just negotiate in like a smash and grab approach, but also try to unlock supply chain efficiencies that benefit us all. Makes sense. As you look at a supply chain and look at the current climate with everything going on in China and the political tensions that we've seen rise between America and China and the trade wars that happened in the past, how much has Heyday looked to get outside of China when it comes to their supply chain? Have you been diversifying to Vietnam and India and these other countries outside of China? Yeah, I think most US companies are heavily investing in China in their supply chain. And we have tried and have started to diversify a little bit more even within other countries in Southeast Asia. Another thing that we're trying to explore is what's a hybrid approach. So essentially, trying to have a near shore supplier, not as an exclusive supplier, because it is going to be more expensive, but yes, to have it as your vendor on for emergencies. Because if I have a vendor in say Honduras that can supply within four weeks for saying, then I only need to carry safety stock for that amount. Even if I source the majority from China or Vietnam or India. Got it. Makes a lot of sense. And you talk about those emergency cases. Does any suppliers come to mind when they've really stepped up to the plate where there was an emergency, whether it be running out of stock or a quality issue or whatever it may be, and a supplier really went above and beyond for heyday? I think a great story that we have of a partnership with a supplier happened actually when we were trying to onboard the brand. And generally aggregators don't want to do manufacturing because it's a whole different skill set that you do not necessarily want to develop. So we managed one of our suppliers to actually take ownership of the plant from the brand that we were trying to acquire. That was probably the most salient 
partnership. And then in general, other than classic rushed orders, I think we had one vendor chase after a truck to salvage an item that had been sent with quality issues to Amazon. A strategy that sticks out to me is when our suppliers are willing to hold finished goods safety stock for us, because that cuts a lot of the lead time. And it's an overall supply chain win because you delay incorporating a lot of value into that product versus if we had to hold it as a finished good in the US with all of the tariffs and duties and et cetera. That makes sense. I think a lot of people don't even think about that of asking your supplier to have emergency stock if something were to go wrong. If you see a huge unexpected spike in sales, now you can hopefully get that inventory in time before a stock out or very soon after a stock out. And it's not even an emergency. It's something you should do for all of your high running SKUs as your default. Because once you have a established relationship with a vendor and they realize there's going to be continued business coming in and that you are going to pay for that finished good product, even if it doesn't sell, then you shorten all of your lead times a lot. And that saves you a lot of capital. That makes a lot of sense. That's a great insight. I'm curious on the other side of the story, are there any supply chain horror stories, whether it comes to freight or sourcing or quality control? We love hearing horror stories because that's just so interesting to see how <laughs> brands in America have to deal with suppliers around the world and everything that can go wrong when it comes to that. Probably a lot longer than expected manufacturing lead times would be the ones that are most out because then there's like nothing that you can do. You're just going to run out of stock. And if that happens on your high sellers, on your strategic products, that's going to hurt you. What kind of excuses were they making? Oh, it's going to be six weeks, but now it's 12 weeks and now it's... Yeah, the usual. Yeah. Um, and the worst ones are when that happens and then also you go into Chinese New Year because then everything shuts down for weeks. So best of luck. Yeah, yeah. It's wow. very important that you get your orders for the holiday period way in advance, generally like sometime like around June. Yeah, yeah. What, what are some strategic bets that you're making this year in your supply chain? You talked about having stock being held at your supplier. If you need to get it in before having to go through a whole new production run, are there any other kind of strategic bets or approaches that your team is taking this year or that they took last year that you've found really successful? I think of the ones that I can speak of, what we're really working towards is always improving our forecasting. Because once you got on your handle on your basics, so like actively monitoring your stock levels, making sure that you are frequently in an automated fashion, replenishing and placing orders then your key variable is your forecasting because that's what's going to determine everything. If you have a high bias, you're going to over or under buy. So honing in on that and developing best-in-class forecasting techniques and processes is, to me, the most important right now. Makes sense. And how do you typically go about having best-in-class forecasting? Does that stem from understanding average turnaround times from your supplier, average freight times. How do you look at the whole picture when it comes to forecasting? So 
there you're thinking of inventory optimization rather than forecasting. For inventory optimization, it's very important that you truly have really good data on mm -hmm. your shipment times, on your manufacturing processing time, so that you can factor in what safety stock to have, what your replenishment time and your reorder point should be. But that's not what I would call forecasting. For forecasting, I'm strictly speaking about demand forecasting. And for best-in-class demand forecasting, you want to always start with segmenting what your products are to understand the inherent nature that they have. Are they smooth, erratic, lumpy? And then you're going to decide which models you're going to run them through. Then you really need to run a host of different models for all of your SKUs. Then test them and understand which one of those models are better for each SKU and not just for each SKU, but at which lag of time. Because one model can be great to predict two or one month out, but it can really fail six months out. And you need those two different signals of information because on one, on the four or five, six months out, they're going to be placing orders. On the one, two months out, that's what you need for your replenishment from your 3PL to your vendor. That's what you're going to use to determine whether any commercial strategy is successful or not to use as a baseline. And then once you do, you do all of that, what you want to do is not just use the best model, but you want to do what's called meta-ensembling, which is giving like a weighting to each one of the models based on how well they perform. And then just having one output of an, an average expectation at a different point in time. And one part that I missed is all of this is true for just taking sales data and forecasting. But then there's another layer, which is adding different variables. That, and this you can really only do if you use AI. And with that, how has your pricing changed? How, what was your inventory? What was the marketing spend? So that you can really refine that expectation of sales. So you try to look at as many variables as you can when it comes to forecasting to be as accurate as possible. Yes. And you also need to know which ones not to look at because not right, all yeah. of them are actually going to add value. <laughs> Very true. Good point. So forecasting to me really reflects on metrics, right? And I'm curious as a head of supply chain, what are the main metrics you're tracking either on a daily or weekly or monthly basis? What are some of the main metrics that you need to have a tab on? So on the more like operational level, in your day-to-day, week-to-week, the most important one and what everyone's going to yell at you for is your in-stock percent and how much lost revenue because of out-of-stocks and also the expected and how fast you're going to replenish. That's the key at day-to-day -day level. And then if you take a step back and go into monthly, then the ones that matter to me are your MAPE, mean absolute percent error of forecasting and your MPE, your bias, which is the same, but not absolute. And that's once how much you err and the other one is if you're erring to one side or the other. And that's for the forecast. And then on the inventory side, you're going to really be looking at are your days of inventory at, and seeing which ones, which packets of inventory you should be liquidating because there's no chance that you're going to sell it within a year, just through normal course of business, which ones just sit on it and then worry are short. Awesome. Axel, as we wrap up here, I've got to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Isba. 
ISBA helps you with forecasting, demand planning, understanding if your 3PL is performing right. So give ISBA a look for everyone listening in. And actually, our last and final question here, which is my favorite, and it's always interesting to hear what people say, but what is a hard lesson that you're grateful that you've learned either within your supply chain or within your career or just within life in general? What's a hard lesson that you're grateful that you've learned? Extreme ownership, I would say. Yes, always operate. It doesn't matter if it's your job or your own business as though you owned it and, and truly have a sense of ownership and excellence of everything that you do. Amazing. I love that. Axel, extreme ownership. If anyone wants to get in touch or follow Heyday, they can just go to heyday.co. And Axel, can they find you on LinkedIn? Absolutely. Axel Barbara on LinkedIn. Amazing. Everyone, thank you again for listening in to this episode of e-commerce on tap brought to you by Sourceify. Please subscribe, leave it a review. It really helps us. And thank you again, Axel, for joining us. Thanks, Nathan.